Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Curbs. And I'm Lish. And today is a very special day because we are celebrating one of my absolute favorites, Pinocchio! I don't know if I'm ready for this. What's not to love about a wooden puppet who comes to life, turns into a donkey, gets swallowed by a whale, and then becomes a real boy? Honestly, too many things to list, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And maybe even wish upon a star? This is a Disney podcast, Curbs. It'd be inappropriate not to. Okay, Lish, it is time. Not only for one of my favorite Disney movies, but also season two. Welcome back. Here we are, bigger and better than ever. Yes. Can you believe that we made it here? I honestly felt like low-key nervous recording the intro, but then as soon as we started, I was like, oh... I've missed it. It's been a long time since we've done this. It was so great to get back into like the research components, Mm -hmm. you know, forcing myself to watch a movie. I didn't want to. (laughs) Magical. I just, I, (laughs) listen, if we're going to have to hear, me and the audience, if we're going to have to hear about how much you hate most of these movies all season, it's going to be a long haul for us and for you. I know. You know, I, I, I would like to acknowledge that you are entering a tough season, mm-hmm. uh, literally season, not like, you know, season of life, but like a tough yeah. season of our show where you're going to have to watch a lot of movies I know you don't love. But I'm yeah. hoping that some of the stuff you learn, some of that magical behind mm-hmm. the scenes goodness, at least will kind of compensate for how little you enjoy the movie. And I think that today's star has some of that goodness in it. For sure, for sure. And like, I've always wanted to just watch everything in the Disney canon, Mm -hmm. like the Disney animated films at least. And it's just like, there's some movies that are just so hard to like motivate myself to watch. So this is, you know, this is a good reason. I'm going to check some off the box that either haven't seen or haven't seen in a long time and did not remember at all. (laughs) Did did not remember, did not care for, did not ever yeah. want to revisit. This one, Pinocchio, mm-hmm. is by far, as you know, one of my favorite Disney movies. And I have loved it since I was a child. I really have Crazy watched it so many times. Me. I know. I It's one of the first VHSs, Disney VHSs mm-hmm. we had. I know it was my grandma's favorite. So maybe that's one of the reasons we owned it. I think she gave it to us, to be okay. honest. I think like When it was re-released in 1992, she's like to my mom, like, you have a child. Here you go. And then we kind of, that was one of the few we had. Mm -hmm. But I think Pinocchio is adorable. I think Jiminy Cricket is hilarious. I love Foul Fellow and Gideon. Like, I absolutely love them. Stromboli's funny. Oh, so creepy. I, I mean... Okay, that's a matter of opinion. I know that we're going to get a lot of feels from both sides Mm -hmm. on this one. So maybe, you know what, before we get too ahead of ourselves with, you know, feeling Mm -hmm. about the characters and the story, I feel like we need to set the stage. You know, that's what we do so well here at Scenario D. We set the stage, set it up to knock it down. So why don't why don't you tell us Disney at the time? What was happening here? Well, this as you know, we know is the 
second film to come out of Walt Disney Animation Studios. So Snow White had just happened. It was a huge success. And by second film, I mean second feature. So like they're, of course, doing like all the silly symphonies and like all of the shorts and all that kind of stuff. But to actually put all the time and energy that goes into a feature, this is the second time that they're doing that. And like Snow White was just such a huge undertaking that there's a lot of quotes from a lot of people that worked at the studio that it's just like it wasn't really on anyone who was working there's minds what was next because you're just like working so hard so many hours to like this Mm -hmm. huge big project and then it's just like done and then it's just kind of like what's next um, of course, that is something that is on someone like Walt's mind because he's Walt. Yes. Well, I mean, how many times in your own life, though, like when you were working on Space Jam 2, mm-hmm. that was like the only thing that was the oh, yeah. it was such tunnel vision, right? Like, yeah, how can you sure. even imagine working on another project when it's so big? Yeah. Right? And it's just like this huge lead up and then you just kind of like crash afterwards and then to be at a studio at Disney and then Walt's just like, OK, like next and you know, they had a lot of things like in rotation, a lot of ideas. They had to grow the studio. So um, an announcement went out. I don't know if this was from Walt or like one of the executives at the studio at the time, but they basically announced they were going to do an animated feature a year, which they were not okay. able to follow through on. <laughs> Slow your roll, Walt. Oh, my gosh. Like, a bit aggressive. <laughs> Considering like how long and how much work Snow White took, but they were really committed to, they were committed to it. Like it was a huge success and they just wanted to like keep riding off of that and keep, you know, providing. But like, okay, that's fine. But I, you got to admire gumption and admission. You really do. I, I love and appreciate those things about dear old Walt, but dude honestly like chill for like and it's two just seconds. they were they were just obviously not ready for something like that right oh like yes gosh. they had yeah. they had done one successfully but it's just like they weren't exactly like a a well-oiled machine there's still a lot of oh, kinks man. to work out like in terms of like hiring so they were at about 600 people by the time snow white wrapped Mm -hmm. and they had to grow even from there so it's like a massive massive studio they needed more space they needed more equipment um they ended up um buying this 51 acre piece of land in Burbank and just kind of like continued to grow from there Mm. I actually heard an interesting story about that studio do you want to hear it I do tell me yeah (laughs) Can you imagine if you said no? I actually can. And that no, go hilarious. home. Chris. But anyway, you said yes. Yeah, go, <laughs> go home. This is over. Shut it down. No, I heard something interesting. So I think it is this piece of land, this mm-hmm. 51 acre um, parcel, as it were, in yeah. Burbank. That When Walt bought it, he was taking his dad on a tour of the studio as they were building it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and his, his dad was basically like, so what are you going to use this for when it fails? Oh. And Walt was like, excuse me? And his dad's like, you know, when movies don't work out, what are you going to do? So then Walt had to think quickly on his feet and he's looking around and he's like, uh, a hospital. So then for the rest of the tour, he pretended that oh this space was going to be used for a hospital. So he's like, and you know, an operating room would be in here. We'd have banks of beds over there. But I, it's, it's one of those things where um, that's such a parent reaction, mm-hmm. you know, where your yeah. kid has this passion project that's creative. And I'm sure back in the 40s that type of creative thinking and like um creative passion was even mm-hmm. less understood than it is now because 
there oh, were fewer sure. channels yeah to to go into creative work right like oh, animated films really you think that's gonna work out okay like, yeah yeah when that fails what are you gonna do but yeah what's your anyway. plan b walt and hospital, hospital apparently all right yeah. cool <laughs> super profitable i yeah yeah anyway. he'll probably be a doctor there i don't know like yeah walk makes around sense. in the coat tell people what to do yeah yeah he probably would which is scary but anyway yeah. <laughs> a whole other yeah. thing yikes um yeah. they were planning to have bambi be the next feature and that was the one that was supposed to release in uh 19 i think 38 or 39 uh 38 yep um and uh kind of looking at the story Walt just felt like they weren't ready it's also like they're yeah. going for a much more realistic animal feel with that one which is just much more complex to animate it is, but and I understand why they push it off. But I'm sorry, you saying like, you know, Walt just didn't feel they were ready to tell the story of Bambi. I'm sorry, the story of Bambi is like it's a deer, his mom is shot, Prince of the Forest. Like I don't. What's the story? What 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 story is there to develop? I mean, I I think I'm it's, missing something. You know, like I think it was just like it was made a lot to do with the complexity of the actual animation itself. So it's just right. like in terms of right. like making it real, and then it is just like a dark subject matter too so it's just like specific ways and characters and you know kind of i mean how you go about it i mean he really made a a leap to more dark subject matter with pinocchio he did he did i mean pinocchio like won through as number two because they felt that it was a little bit more straightforward and like what the you know the base subject matter that they were working with also lended itself a little bit easier on the animation side because it's just, you know, more people like the puppets, like there's just a lot more, you know, room for them to use creativity and not be like bound to just like a super realistic feel. Right. You know, so, yes. so that was the main That's reason fair. why. Mm-hmm. I mean, Snow White is a fairy tale and it did so well. There's mm-hmm. something to be said yes. for that too, right? Like if he's looking at trying to put out an animated film a year, you want to, you know, go where the demand is. The demand mm-hmm. seems to be for the fairy tale. Let's try that again because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. For sure. And then this also like gave them a way to kind of uh, tell like a male character story. So to jump from like, mm-hmm. you know, try something a little bit different, a little bit darker, but still kind of staying in that same like fairy tale vein that did work out for them before. So I do understand totally. it as a choice. I mean, well, you know, we'll get into <laughs> my feelings on the execution a little bit later. Oh, gosh. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> One thing I, I think was really great um, with the growth of the studio. I know if anyone's listened to the Snow White episode, we talked about how roles for women were super limited, like people were, women Mm -hmm. were not even allowed to apply for certain jobs. And, um, and with, they basically worked in the ink and paint department and as, as secretaries. So there was a lot of movement on this film because of the fast growth and development. There was a lot more openness, not as animators, but hiring women for roles outside of just ink and paint department and taking some of the talent that they had in that department and developing them into other things. So right, a few ladies um, that I want to mention, because I think they're not super well-known names, but they were really big trailblazers at the time. So we've got mm-hmm. Bianca Mejoli. I'm not exactly sure if I'm saying that right, but she was a native Italian and this story as... I'm sure we'll discuss later was an Italian story. 
So mm-hmm. she was actually the one that did a fresh translation of it and adapted it with the animation medium in mind. So she kind of continued that influence that women had in the story department, as we did talk about in Snow White with Dorothy and Blank and kind of, you know, yes, exactly. The OG. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of helped, helped solidify like a a female space in that, you know, early development and storytelling part, um, which I think is, you know, it's such a key aspect of how these stories are told and the point of views and perspectives in them. So I think it's great that they had her kind of take the charge on the like translation and the original like base for the story. Mm-hmm. Um, someone else that was a key player in the story department's name was Faith Rukas. Um, She was in the ink and paint department and she became a story artist on Pinocchio. So um she was just like one of those people that we talked about that you know started in ink and paint and was able to develop and grow at the studio uh by 1939 there were nearly 400 women at Walt Disney Animation Studios which is like huge that's Whoa. like a, a huge amount a huge percentage well cuz you said there were 600 people right there's six yeah there was over 600 people at this point so 600 is right you know when snow white ended so they continued to grow so they had probably brought on a couple hundred more people so it's it's a lot easier to like bring people on to some of the like easier roles like you can bring people on as like an in-between animator and then they kind of develop and grow as as their career expands and it's a lot easier to bring people on to the ink and paint department and move some of those talented people to, you know, other departments and that kind of thing. So she was definitely someone, you know, an example of someone that uh, was able to grow and move on. Um, And like I said, 400 women employed and only 200 of them were in the ink and paint department, which means there's a lot that were, you know, able to doing other things into uh, other parts of the filmmaking process, which is really cool. And then um, breaking in, they are, they are. And the last one I want to mention for now is um, Marion Wiley Sturrett, because she was the first female background painter. So that was like another new department that women were not involved in, in Snow White. Um, A very, again, like key department um, with setting the look and, and feel and all the colors and everything. So really Mm -hmm. cool to start to have, um, women involved there and I like I think the key here is that it really just takes one to kind of open the door and show that it's possible and I think once you know the other other men working there and everything are starting to see it it becomes like more accepted other women are seeing other women in those roles and then it starts to like grow and expand from there so I think it's really great to see that they were able to make these strides from you know just snow white over to the second feature with pinocchio oh 100 percent, yeah yeah another key thing with with this one is they're really like i said with snow white it was kind of just like like they were doing something brand new and there was just this huge like hustle and like let's just like get this done and now with with the second one they're really trying to settle into 
What are the processes? What are the verbiages that we're using? What is the new technology? And you're starting to like, especially with bringing on more and more people, you need to have certain things standardized. There needs to be a certain language with how people are communicating and animation being like so, so young at this point, they're really just like creating that, um, which I think is like, would have been a crazy thing to be a part of. Like I've worked at studios where it's like, they're just, the studio is breaking into animation and there's so many things that have to be like ironed out and like, you know, on the technical side figured out, like I can't imagine be doing, being a part of like animation at its start. Like there's just so much on these people that they have to figure out. Yeah, like so much to figure out, but also like you said, to define because these things have never been put into words before. Like they've never- They've never existed in the larger kind of creative cultural zeitgeist of what it means to make a chair come to life, right? Yeah. And like, how do you explain like certain director's notes or like supervisor's notes? Like they had to come up with Mm -hmm. ways of like expressing to the artists, like what they needed to change. And it's just like, this is all so new. So like an example of this is something that um, is still referred to, like a lot of these are still used in the animation industry today. So squash and stretch. So this is basically Mm -hmm. like the movement of a character from like one frame to the next and how like rigid or stiff they're moving. It like shows how like flexible or elastic the character is and so it's just like it it has to do with like a style of animation so certain things like this that they they came up with these words and these terms and that's how they were actually able to communicate effectively with such a massive team of people Mm -hmm. that are a lot of them brand new to to working on these Right. And then, of course, these people that are brand new, they become the authority on these things mm-hmm. though, as well, right? Because sure. they're part of defining it for like the whole entertainment world. And it's these like terms, squash and stretch in particular, when I took, do you remember when I took that like one animation class I do, in university? Yes. yes. Yeah. And I had to actually like animate, I animated mm-hmm. a ball like going downstairs mm-hmm. and my prof was talking about uh, Nicholas Stedman, shout out, buddy. Um, <laughs> he was talking about squash and stretch and i was like oh you mean like frank thomas ollie johnson like illusion of life squash and stretch like animation and he looked at me like i was insane and i'm like i can't i can't pretend to have a conversation with about animation with you when you don't even know who's responsible for those terms i'm sorry like i just i i don't i don't want to talk to you yeah i don't like this class thank you so much for your time i would like an honest honestly though it was it was wild to me though how just being a fan of Disney films and like mm-hmm. educating myself yeah. on even just these basic principles and like who made them when they came into effect, all that type of thing. It really is more than just liking Disney films, right? For like sure. it, it, they did yeah. have, those early ones did have such a profound impact on what other people now take for granted that there mm-hmm. is a different level of um, authority or knowledge that comes into investigating these old films. So thank you for coming to my TED talk about squash yeah. and stretch. Really appreciate you being here. Um, but it just sparked sparked some of those ideas. Basically, I'm saying we're elite-lish for looking into yes. this. We are elite because we know what these terms mean. And yeah, for sure. That's all, and, that's all I wanted to say. And it's it's like I said, it's something that's like still referenced in like projects that I've um, I've worked on. You know, 
Um, so it's, it's, they basically built the Bible on this that is still used to this day, which is, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Another thing that like really stood out to me as I was, you know, doing a lot of research on this project is, and I think we didn't really talk about this too much in the, in the early princess movies, but just like how, like key Walt's leadership was like, I feel like you, you really like in my mind, at least I associate that with Disneyland and like what Mm -hmm. he built and how it was like his idea really. But I, that doesn't come through for me so much in the films when I think about them. But when I was researching this one, there was, there was so much just about like, Oh, like Walt thought of this and like, you know, Walt was like the driving force behind this. And it's just like, this really was like his, like brainchild that he got like Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to like make for him which is just like really crazy and that really like stood out to me there's like a lot of quotes people saying it's like Walt could have been doing this with a whole different team and like the result would have probably been more or less the same yes you he had a lot of talented people and he had an eye for that and he he was just really good at like bringing that out of people and such mm-hmm. such a good communicator at communicating to the artists like what he wanted and like not settling yep. for anything that didn't didn't meet like his artistic criteria or his story criteria or whatever like it just like everything like had to be the best so that was just really cool and that was a huge standout to me and everything that I was researching for this movie it was just like all about Walt and his vision. and I feel like yeah even all about Walt, but also the people he chose to work with. I don't know. I think that maybe that's one of the reasons too. I'm going to spend this whole episode trying to articulate why I love Pinocchio mm-hmm. so much. I think it's that knowledge and knowing that the people who worked on it, like I feel like this film was crafted more than it was made, if that yeah. makes sense. Like yeah, because agree. there was so much care and there was so much love from the people making it. Like it was important and special to all of them. It wasn't mm-hmm. just another movie. And I know that there is to an extent that type of thing with every Disney film, because the teams who make them, especially once we get later into the Renaissance and films start to look so different from each other. I think those teams that are brought together just for those specific films, obviously they feel the same way, but because this film was so early on and so much hinged on its success there Mm -hmm. to me, it just feels like there's a different, you know, glow or warmth about it. And again, I'm saying that because I know all of this behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. But I think that's part of what makes now my childhood nostalgia of enjoying the film. It makes it that much stronger yeah. because I have all this other kind of like, well, they loved it so much. Like I would also love to love it that yeah. much, you know? Yeah. No, I, I totally get it. And like there, you know, as much as I don't love it, I can like sense that magic behind it in the same way, even if it, you know, isn't a movie that warms my heart so much as creeps me out um but (laughs) it creeps not warms well but uh, first I definitely get what you mean and I can definitely still like sense the the crafting as you say with the with all the behind the scenes the one part of this movie that I did not hate um was (laughs) Jiminy Cricket so to me he was just like a standout uh, really from like the beginning of the movie and I was like oh this isn't so bad and then it you know got weird um, but 
but I think that it's was super crucial to have him kind of be the like narrating role in this film and kind of just like starting us off and taking us through it and I Mm -hmm. I did also read that that was another thing that like Walt kind of came up with and you know he was really the driving force behind you know this the role that this character played in the film and to me like he was just like by far the best part of the movie and just like was super enjoyable to watch and I don't know really the only part that was like palatable for me oh my goodness that's that's such a that's such a harsh statement palatable like come on that's that feels a touch melodramatic I, I whatever you have your experience I have mine that's fine but I will agree with you that Jiminy Cricket slaps he's he's yeah, the best he's, he is my by far my favorite character he's this great movie. he is yeah yeah I, I agree and um he's hilarious yeah one of um Walt's nine old men was the you know designer creator and supervising animator of Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket Jiminy Kermit uh, <laughs> <laughs> god um and that was ward kimball and um love him great great animator he was you know really famous for being the guy that you know was less interested in doing the like realistic human characters and really Mm -hmm. wanted Mm -hmm. to do the like comical sidekick um and you know he's done a lot of that throughout his career at disney um, he had always dreams of becoming an artist growing up and oh, that was just like bless. always something really on his heart despite his like parents discouraging him otherwise and in the 1930s he was just very desperate for work so he ended up getting a job at Disney which he thought would just be like a stepping stone to his art career but obviously right. ended up you know spending a lot of his career there <laughs> He started out as an in-betweener, which is basically, I think we've touched on this before, but um, the key artists or supervising animators will do the main drawings and then the in-betweeners will just kind of fill in the frames in between. So that's how he started. He eventually became a junior animator, worked on a lot of the silly symphonies and started to catch a lot of people's eyes, you know, um, was, was mentored by some other animators at the studio. And he was given a full um, sequence in Snow White, which was just like oh. the, the dwarfs that he animated. And Walt yep. kind of handpicked him for that scene himself. Um, oh, it was wow. a four and a half minute scene. It took 230 days for him to animate yep. it. And it did not make it into the final film. So... oh. Okay, I'm sorry. Wait, what? So Walt Walt Ham picks him. He goes, yep. "Hey, buddy, come on. Hey there, Ward. How are you, buddy?" Yeah. Pulls him over. Says, "I would love you to take on this huge thing because I see potential." And Ward's like, "Amazing. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. my chance." And so yeah. he does this. 230 days later, I'm just picturing him growing a beard that like trails yeah. to the floor, and he's just like, "Must finish the dwarves." Finishes this sequence. Walt looks at it and goes, "Buddy, that's great. We're not going to put it in the picture. I'm so sorry." Like, what? Pretty, what is that? That's a slap in the face. Pretty much. I mean. It happens oh though. Like it ha- that's just like part of being an animator. Like your stuff. Oh my goodness. It sometimes just doesn't make it in just for the good of the the film. It's like heartbreaking the every time. No, like 230 days. Like, oh my god. That's gosh. too long. That's like, I just 
like when you think about how everything too was a hundred percent done by hand back then, mm-hmm. like there was no cheating. Like it yeah. was, we weren't in the Xerox era yet. There's none of this like no cutting and pasting. No, it's just I mean, like that's just like oh my I, gosh. I can't do math to figure out how many like drawings that would be, but it's a lot of drawings that he did. And it's too many. Didn't quite. It's make too it. many that didn't make it. Yeah. Um. Jeez. There was like rumors that uh, he was going. He like met with Walt after this and was basically going to go into his office and quit. But uh, Walt kind of turned it around and ended up giving him a promotion to to be a supervising animator on the next feature, which was <laughs> Pinocchio. So. It's like, I'm walking. Please don't. I'll promote you. That's yeah. wild. Something, that. something like that went down. Um, but but the like, you know, being a supervising yeah. animator on one of the key characters was really enticing for him. And there was a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on this character. I think they knew early on, like the role that they were going to give it and how important it was. And it's just like mm-hmm. interesting how they got where they did, because it really started with like an actual looking like cricket and then it was just like you know like ward looking at it was like this guy does he can't really tell like a story and it just kind of you know there was less to do comedically with him which he didn't like and so then he like stood the cricket up but then it was just like a standing like again actual cricket and then it just (laughs) like slowly evolved to the Jiminy cricket that we know and love today so it was a lot of iterations to get to the design of that character it's like when DreamWorks saw A Bug's Life and was like, oh, cool, we'll do that too, and made that Ants movie where it's just like they look like actual ants and it's just yeah. disgusting. Yeah, like just. <laughs> Walt's like, I have a great idea. Let's draw bugs. And Ward's like, it's not going to work, man. It's Sorry. not. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's just. It can't I'm not spending 230 days on four and a half minutes of this ugly bug. All right. I'm just, yeah, I'm not doing seriously. it. I refuse. Seriously. No. And I mean, I think they they felt like they had more license to make him look how they wanted to because cricket was in the name. So it's like you would know he was a cricket without actually him having to look like a cricket, because if they didn't call him Jiminy Cricket, I don't know what I would think he was just like a little. No, it's fair. He doesn't have wings and he doesn't have long legs, but they do have that genius shot at the beginning where the camera like hops up to Geppetto's window. Right. When Jiminy's describing how he got there. Mm -hmm. And I think that also, of course, is a deliberate attempt to remind you, like, he is a little little cricket bug. He is a cricket and not Mm -hmm. just like a little green blob with a suit on. Jiminy Crimmit is a cricket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Another, like, interesting side note is, like, Ward kind of, like, actually hated working on him. And he was just, in general, not happy with how he turned out. He like, mm-hmm. you know, years later still kind of hated the character, which I don't know. I think it's a little bit interesting because he's clearly the best part of the movie. So, yeah, well, I but know. I mean, I'm sure there are things you've done in your life creatively or whatever yeah. where other people say it's great and you're like, mm, could be better. Could have been like, better. Yeah, true. True. Could have been better. You know, but I mean, at least so you made it into I, I the movie. That. So that's. You know, well, that's, that's the, the win thing. for Ward. It's like you made it into the movie this time. Yeah. <laughs> for Ward. Yeah. It sounds like one of those kids, like $2.50 paperback books you can buy. Mm-hmm. There's like yeah. a picture on your page. Oh, a win yeah. for Ward. A wow. win for Ward. And he was just a super yeah. complex character all around. Like also for like the cleanup department, ink and paint department, because he was so small and he had like all mm-hmm. those different like colors and patterns going on. 
It was just, you know, the way that he was designed was like very, very intricate. And I think the whole team all around Mm -hmm. did a really great job with him. The voice acting is great with him too. Like I just, Oh yeah. Just can't say it enough. Best part of the movie. (laughs) I mean, I would have to agree as much as I love the whole thing. Jiminy is definitely the star Mm -hmm. and your comment about him being a really complex character. It speaks to me because Mm -hmm. they really emphasized character development in this whole film in a bunch of different Mm ways uh one of the biggest ones being that this is actually where maquettes first came in Mm -hmm. to the disney company now for those of you uh scenario d listeners shout out uh appreciate Mm -hmm. you each and every one of you uh our mulan episode we do talk about maquettes uh and how important they are for animators because it allows you to see every angle and this and that Mm -hmm. and everything else just go listen to that episode to get the full the full scoop (laughs) but they actually started kind of building this part of the character you know department out in the late 1930s so walt had handpicked this group of artists and sculptors and they made what's now known as the character model department very descriptive i know very very uh, <laughs> yeah. on the nose nobody said they're overly clever or creative but you know what they are in other ways so here we are and guess who headed this department lish no no yeah you're born i know oh Joe OMG. Grant, we love you, buddy. Rest in peace. Yeah, <laughs> JG, JG himself. Uh, he, oh my god, uh, he was in charge. Uh, this explains why he comes up so often because okay. the character model department was one of Walt's favorite places to come up with new ideas. He'd just head mm-hmm. on down there, you know, take a take a knee or take a sit with Joe and just chill, right. just throw some ideas around, you know, because this is where you know, his team focused on the concepts, the characters, overall designs, and they Mm, made all these little maquettes. And I mean, not only did they make maquettes for the core characters so that, and I mean, when I say core characters, there's actually many core characters because of how the story kind of unfolds, Mm -hmm. but you know, all five or whatever of the villains had maquettes. Uh, You have Geppetto. I know you've got Geppetto, you got Cleo, you got Figaro, you got the Blue Fairy, you got everybody. And then they also made maquettes of other important objects in the film, like Stromboli's wagon, all those cuckoo mm. clocks. Most of them had a maquette because that scene to animate Geppetto's uh, workshop with everything sure. moving on its yeah. own, and like the swinging camera angles, like just so many <laughs> angles. And they're just like, you know what? We're not going to be able to do this uh, unless we have it physically in front of us and can look at it from every side. Because you, As can't, a fun fact, you can't have the same like animator doing all of that, right? Like you're going to have to split up that work. It's just the only Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially all those opening sequences uh, of the village at night and then Geppetto's mm-hmm. workshop. They're just so intensive with the detail and the yeah. fact that everything was moving. Like yeah. to try to make this magical fairy tale you know, toys come to life, atmosphere, everything needs to look like mm-hmm. it's been, you know, touched by a little bit of magic. But a fun fact about maquettes, this is not really a fun fact so much as a curb story hour, but the VHS for Pinocchio that I grew up with, okay, came out in the early 90s, 1992. There is a commercial on it for Nightmare Before Christmas. Now, how is this relevant? Why is this interesting? Let me explain. That film, of course, is Tim Burton's masterpiece, and it is made Mm -hmm. with nothing but maquettes. I think it's fascinating that this Disney film that is so maquette heavy relied Mm -hmm. so much on that kind of, you know, to some maybe simplistic or archaic technology then also was advertising, you know, a film for 50 years later that is also using still that method for bringing characters and stuff to life 
I think it's a beautiful little symbiotic relationship. If no one else finds that interesting, I will say this is more interesting than Sean Yu being on a horse. This mm-hmm. is definitely more interesting than that. So you can't come for me about it. Um, but in general, all this to say between mm-hmm. Joe Grant and the character mile department and Walt being obsessed with being in there and all this type of thing, there was just so much more emphasis on the characters' personalities in this movie. Mm-hmm. Even when you look at Snow White, Snow White was like a bland pancake. Honestly, she just really didn't have that much going on. We talked about how the dwarves had unique personalities, yeah. but they were still quite rigid. Like bashful only blushed. Like, you know what I mean? were, like that they was were given like a word, right? It it's yes. and didn't go too far beyond that. Yeah, really. they they really stayed in their lanes. Yeah. There was no mm-hmm. deviation from, like you said, that one word or that one defining characteristic. And they also were core characters. But in Pinocchio, you see that every character, regardless of how often they're on screen or how much dialogue they have or how involved they are in the story, you kind of get a sense that they're all completely different, right? Like Figaro is a mm-hmm. lot of people's favorite because he's super just like unimpressed with everything you get the sense that Cleo's a flirt even though she's a fish who doesn't talk like there was just they really wanted to make sure that everybody was distinct and a lot of that is through more subdued you know gestures mm-hmm. or actions mm-hmm. so that the audience especially in those opening scenes all they have to focus on is getting to know these characters yeah through how they in- interact with their environments yeah. which they did so well and of course a lot of that focus is on Pinocchio but he was one of the biggest problems because in the original story he's the worst like he's not at all likable no like he he literally kills jiminy in the first like three pages of the original story did i laugh i did i did laugh out loud because the version i read had hilarious illustrations and i was like what am i reading right now like i was so i was so taken aback but he's not overly likable in the original story and then on top of that animators are like should we be treating him like a puppet or like a boy like right. like how is yeah. he supposed to get animated and it's almost like they panicked and just said oh both yeah. <laughs> uh, but- why one when you can have two so he's kind of both and i mean i i i do think he was successful i think they leaned more to the small boy side and they mm-hmm. did that by really limiting and reducing his dialogue to being that adorable why he's just always asking like why yeah. and why not i gotta say it for like, everything me out like at the end when he was just like all of a sudden a boy because like i'd never oh, yeah, seen no, like yeah. that pinocchio and i was like like why does he look so weird and then i was like oh now he's a real boy i get it okay why yeah. does this puppet look so strange all of a sudden i don't like him as a real boy geppetto's like you are a real boy and i'm like i don't I can make him a puppet again you know what i mean like yeah. let's go back it's like when rapunzel's hair gets cut off and everyone's like make her blonde like it's that same type of yeah thing for, sure. for me thankfully he's only a human boy for like two minutes yeah you know? not even. <laughs> we don't have to look at that yeah i mean if i had seen him that way first i'd probably think he's cute but yeah, it was a little like off-putting so, to all of us. It's a, a little sudden, jarring. But, it's a little know, jarring. I was yeah. just like glad yeah. that the donkey ears and tail were gone. Oh my gosh. Just... I um, man, we're gonna talk about those donkey ears yeah. because that's that's a wild part of the story. But um yeah, they took this more little boy approach. They really reduced his dialogue and like everything for him needed to be a new experience, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's literally wood that's come to life. So the fact that he sticks his finger in the fire and he thinks it's exciting, even though Geppetto's like, oh crap, like you're burning. Yeah. Like that's a problem. So um 
Can I ask, yeah. like, so you said you think it was successful. Like, you do you think that Pinocchio, the character, is likable? Like, do you like him? I do like him. Yeah. Like, not but it's just largely the because movie. he's like, cute. You like it's, the character. I like, well, I like what Disney did with the character. Yes. Okay. I don't like the character in the original story. No, he's but in the, the worst. movie, what you're talking about. Yeah, I like him. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I do like him. But it's, right. it's largely because of how cute he is. I'm not going to pretend that I think he's got depth or anything. He's just adorable. Like, I, okay. I love Pinocchio so much that when I was there in Disney training, mm-hmm. Yeah. One of our trainers left the room for a brief moment. She's like, I'll be right back. And then two minutes later, Pinocchio comes into the room. Obviously, spoiler, it's the woman dressed as Pinocchio. I burst into tears. I started crying because I love, like, I I love him so much. Okay. And and Pinocchio came over to me and he, like, held my hand and he just, like, stroked my hand and gave me a hug. And I was like, I'm just crying. And everyone, I don't know, people thought I was upset. And I was like, I'm not upset. I'm like overjoyed. Like I'm, I'm so excited. Happy <laughs> tears. Happy tears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when the trainer came back as a trainer, she was like, Oh, Kirsten, heard, uh, heard that uh, you met Pinocchio and that you were really moved by that experience. I was like, Don't come for me. Don't make this a weird thing. All right, yeah. this is Disney. We're training to be characters. I don't. I did not come here to be ridiculed and judged today. All right, yeah. I did not. Yeah. No. No, I really love him. I. Yeah. Man, I did not like him in this movie. I didn't think no? that they were like successful enough at making him likable. Like he was just too like the only part like I kind of liked him in the beginning up until he like escaped Stromboli's thing and then like yeah. didn't go home. Yeah. I mean, he's he's frustrating, but you have to remember he's like 5. I know, but I, I he just, he was like in the cage and he's like, I'm never going to see my dad again. And I'm like, yeah, that sucks. And then he just did nothing about it. <laughs> and then you're like, rot, go and rot, yeah. you piece of wood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like honest. Okay. I mean, okay. Let's talk about the story for a second because this is where the whole crux, the whole problem, right? Mm-hmm. This is the, the big, the big dilemma. Yeah. The original story required extensive adaptation to make it suitable for what Disney wanted to do on the silver screen. This yeah. original story, like you mentioned earlier, an Italian story, this it may or may not be related. I don't know enough about other Italian stories or like fairy tales, but it was exceptionally dark and horrific. And like, yeah. even with the changes Disney made, they were accused of frightening children. And actually I, as a child thought the movie ended at Stromboli because I ironically got scared. and <laughs> My mom would turn it off. So I loved yeah. what I saw, but thought Stromboli was terrifying. And then you make it to the coachman and you're like, is this man a pedophile and a child murderer and a whatever? Like what's happening? Yeah. That There's was where I really was like, Oh, this is not okay. And no, yeah, it's not okay. No, yeah. you're right. But can I please, I'm going to read you now five things that Disney changed. Okay. And you're going to be like, how could this possibly get worse? I'm about to tell you. So change one, Geppetto isn't arrested for child abuse. Nice. Love that. Good change. Good change. Change two, Pinocchio isn't hanged by an assassin at any point in the Disney adaptation. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That happens. Okay. He's a puppet, of course. So the assassin thinks that he's hanging a child, which is also disturbing. Uh, but he's a puppet. But because so he he's die. a puppet, he survives. Uh-huh. Okay. He just sure. hangs there for a while. And then I can't remember how he gets down, but like it ain't pretty. Three, Pinocchio doesn't burn his feet off while he's sleeping because his feet get like in a fire. You know, and he's, he's a sleeping wood, in a fire so, and he burns his know. feet off. Yeah. Yep. 
for, uh, <laughs> you're going to hate this, Pinocchio's dead donkey flesh isn't eaten by fish. So his donkey parts, they like die and fall off and get eaten by fish. That's disgusting. And then finally, I would, I could have done with the donkey parts falling off because they were just, he had those ears I think they for fall off. too long. Either yeah. way, do I want to watch a fish eat no. dead donkey parts? No, no. I do not. No. And then finally, uh, the blue fairy used to be a shapeshifter in the original story and her first appearance was as a corpse. So um, we have some tough stuff to work with here. Uh, (laughs) It's it's just a little bit like why this story? I mean, I know all like all the fairy tales like that that they made like had a dark, you know. Well, this is but this is why I'm saying like, but it's just like why this? Maybe we need to read up on like Italian folk tales or whatever because maybe maybe there's other ones like it. Like I I. I got to be honest, I would love it if this was a one-off. Like if Carlo Collati was like, I'm going in on <laughs> children's horror. Yeah. Like maybe this story wasn't originally written for children. Like I don't know. Mm-hmm. I do know that when I was in Germany, I found what I thought was a graphic novel version of Pinocchio. Turns out it was like pseudo porn. It was weird. But this mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. This is Pinocchio spurs people to think of really inappropriate, weird things. It's a horrific story. And like, even with Disney changing the ending mm-hmm. to be yeah. one that's happy because it yeah. is ultimately still a happy ending. It's still super dark. Like, like I said, there's like so many villains, so many people that so are out many. to get him. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's literally five, I think. So wait, we've got Stromboli, the coachman, honest John, AKA foul fellow, the Fox the Gideon Fox, and yeah. Monstro. That's five. That's five. And yeah. I know this is what contributes to what you call the jungle book problem, mm-hmm. which is it's mm-hmm. a movie that has a lot of different kind of episodes or chapters. It's not really a clear flowing narrative. And these, as, as we were preparing for this, I just started thinking, Oh, the villains kind of mark each of these chapters. And like they're, they're the, kind like, of, it's a different the next one. Villain is like worse than the one before it. It's just <laughs> like, it's like, Oh, this can't get worse. Oh, Oh, we did. We went there like, okay, yeah, we're turning kids into donkeys now. The coachman is the worst. Like Monstro yeah. was last, but he's yeah. not the worst. He just doesn't want to sneeze. Like he's just bummed that he's No, no. Sneezing, he, really. No, he was like going after them pretty aggro at the end. Like I was like whales wouldn't do this. I'm like this is a particularly mean whale. Killer he whales wants- would. <laughs> He, th- my sister and I had the same conversation and I was like, he is oh, not yeah. a killer whale. So like, this is not no, how this no. whale would yeah, behave. He was like He's going monster, for them. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, he wanted them in the belly. Uh, yeah. So he wasn't, uh, yeah. he was not pretty. I mean, with so many different characters, with so many different plot points, with mm-hmm. so many changes to the story, it took them three years. To develop the story. Like three three years just to get to the point where they did where I mean you would argue it's still not successful. So like don't tell don't tell Joe. Don't tell no. anybody on the team. I think most of them have passed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, it's it's just Pinocchio is the absolute worst in the original. Their adaptation did what it could, mm-hmm. but that still doesn't change that visually, I think you can agree with me. That this film is exciting to watch from a visual standpoint. There's just, it's a smorgasbord of exciting animated mm-hmm. sequences. Like, there's so many different settings that are things you haven't seen before. Like, Pleasure mm-hmm. Island, while terrifying, 
mm-hmm. is also like as a kid, I was like, I want to go there. And my mom's like, no way. If that was a real place, you're Sorry. not going. But before before it got scary. My, my before face, it, my face I was know. just like my eyes popped out of my head there for a second. No, I know, Kurt, but you like, don't want to go there. I did because I was like, I would like to eat a big sandwich and throw a brick through a window. I really wanted to do that. It looked exciting to me. My point with saying this, okay, don't mm-hmm. judge child curves, all right? My all point right, with saying no it is just that the way they animated all of these places, it made me as a kid want to go there. It looked appealing. Right. It looked exciting. So right. Geppetto's workshop definitely wanted to go there. Even Stromboli's wagon wanted to go. So like the animators were constantly being challenged to think outside the box and suggest these new ways of drawing and creating all these exciting mm-hmm. different worlds, which for me right. as a viewer back then and still now, it's like visually I'm I'm sold at all times, mm-hmm. regardless of how crappy the characters might be. And I actually I would say that like what they did really successfully with the visuals was although, yes, it, it did kind of have that Jungle Book chapter Mm-hmm. you know problem with the story there was nothing yeah. it flowed visually for me so it wasn't like yes. you know like the different locations and stuff they were all very like you know they had a lot of like brown and like the dark blues and like all of that so like mm-hmm. there was a visual flow between all very of much the different so. like locations and villains and all that kind of thing so it was very cohesive and i mean mm-hmm. with the score underneath it as well mm-hmm. that yes. helps too yes. because all the music, there's really only like two songs if we're going mm-hmm. by like, what can you sing along to, which are both Jiminy songs and they're pretty close together. Like, Give a Little Whistle, which I love. I love that sequence. It's and cute, When yeah. You Wish Upon a Star. The the score was super elaborate. It's layered. It's very evocative yeah. of a fantastical time and place. And this is because, of course, Walt is still leaning into the full potential of sound films, right? Like, he has his Mickey and Minnie shorts. He's got the Silly Symphonies. He did Snow mm-hmm. White. Now he wanted to like, ramp it up a little bit and i mean both give a little whistle and when you wish upon a star in my opinion are two of the most iconic disney songs give a little whistle because it's one of those uh just like fun moments of music in a movie it's the first chance that we really get for that and then when you wish upon a star of course is like the disney song it is Uh, like yeah a hundred percent it's probably the most like iconic thing to come out of the film for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's made such a lasting impact on Disney as a brand and as an experience. It's just, it's so much. And like the fact that it opens and closes the film, gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And fun fact as well, Curbs is fun facts. Uh, this is the first time that the phrase original soundtrack was used to refer to a commercially available movie recording. Oh, Pinocchio was the first. I know. I know. And they earned themselves the Academy Award for Best Original Song for When You Wish Upon a Star and then Best Original Score as well which i think is well deserved the score is beautiful Mm -hmm. it's not i wouldn't say it's timeless like something like cinderella is more timeless to me because of the instrumentation they used and like how it's structured Mm -hmm. but pinocchio's score is extremely effective at telling an oral story like i think it definitely takes you to the film in a way that is yes 100 effective it, it definitely does but like one thing i will say about when you wish upon a star is like that to me is like has transcended the movie to be just mm-hmm. like part of the like disney anthem in a similar way that the yes. character of cinderella has like it's just True. like you know it's very disney world associated like me yes. not not being someone that ever watches this movie or listens to the soundtrack like i love that song 
nothing yes. and you know don't even associate it with pinocchio mm-hmm. to be honest and i think that's probably the no, case for a lot of people yeah it's like a disney artifact not a pinocchio artifact it's yes. it's its own yes. entity within the disney lexicon of like cultural products it kind mm-hmm. of exists on its own you're right one thousand percent yeah mm-hmm. uh one of the like tech things that was a huge standout for me um reading about it it's like like I said, they had to take like huge, huge strides from Snow White and like you could see it. I'm like always on the lookout for like the multiplane camera in like these like <laughs> earlier movies. I'm just like, you know, like the layering and like the distance that they're able mm-hmm. to create is just like still so breakthrough. One of the like yep. brand new things for this movie was actually the like special effects department, which I had no idea was something that actually went back this far because when you think of special effects like I think of like a Marvel movie kind of thing like explosions and like all that yes you know stuff but it's just like a lot of the like simplicities of its foundations came from this film um Mm -hmm. they originally referred to it as the airbrush department and it was its first uh like lead of that department was also a woman so another like trend in this film which is really cool um and her name was barbara worth baldwin um she was like one of the first like female division heads at disney she had 25 people reporting to her and a lot of the men working there apparently took issue with her having the role um but she kind of says that she didn't really pay attention to it and referred to it as kind of silly that anyone had an issue with it so bless barbara i feel like we could have been friends so um sweet gabs yeah yeah uh, she was really like the closest thing to a female animator at this point in the company and she picked her team largely from the ink and paint department and um you know a lot of females some men and they trained along with the animation team so this was the first like start of like integrating like women into that team so that's really cool right um this technology was originally developed in the 1890s and it was used in deco and impressionist movements in art and basically by the 1930s it was just like a standard like photo retouching tool that, you know, a lot of people would have access to. So this team worked directly on the celluloids. They would create clouds, rain, like any of the like Mm -hmm. twinkling of stars or like the fairy, you know, stuff like that. Um, That was all this team, anything to do with like the fishbowl and like that effect, a lot of the like under the sea stuff. Like the like there's like endless things that they did in this film. So it's just like really cool to like have those extra touches that like weren't really a part of Snow White. Like that to me was like one of the biggest things that was just like a step up that they really like upped their game Mm -hmm. on this one. And that was this team. Um, yes. like random fun fact for my left-handed <laughs> father is like they had to make a special airbrush because one of the ladies was left-handed and she would smear the painting if they didn't make this like specific thing for her to use Bless. so yeah. yeah shout out eric that's yes, for you shout out. and for my mom actually Two also left-handed there you go 
Yes. Yeah. Southpaws. <laughs> I think your point about, you know, how like clouds, rain, twinkling lights, fishbowls, undersea effects, blue fairy, all that. Those are all, like you said, kind of extras that they didn't really push for in Snow White because no, in Snow White, they were all. just trying to get the movie done. They yeah. were like, I just, I just kind of want to get this whole thing animated. And then they really allowed the animators to kind of push the envelope. And those mm-hmm. things combined with the multiplan camera, which you mentioned before, mm-hmm. is what really created some of those transportive we've talked about it a lot but like those transportive environments like that scene after pinocchio comes to life okay mm-hmm. the next day before he goes to school yeah. you know that scene where the bells are ringing and the pigeons kind of circle down and around the houses mm-hmm. and then you're looking at geppetto and pinocchio at the front door that's one of the most notable multiplane scenes yes. that most yes. like animation historians would talk about and that costs the equivalent of seven hundred thousand dollars to make It's like five seconds long. Yeah. It's crazy. And this was described by some of Walt's animators as like unprecedented lavishness. Like Walt Mm -hmm. was willing to pay whatever it took to achieve what he wanted. Right. He did not care. But at the same time, he was also happy to find creative solutions to those simple problems. So like airbrushing Mm -hmm. is not complicated and it's Mm-mm. not overly expensive per se but it's effective and they did that yeah. in a lot of a lot of places and then what i thought was interesting about the tech on this film too is they used this thing called photostats have you heard of this no it's me. like the it's like the precursor to the xerox era so mm. like from what i understand it's like this early projection photocopier that animators would use to save time and money on animated animating complicated inanimate objects in particular so not so much like characters but like stromboli's wagon is where i read it was the most important because there's so many things inside that wagon and they're all moving and swaying in different directions because of the wagon rolling over the cobblestones right so when pinocchio is locked in the cage and it's bouncing and swinging the seat swings in the opposite direction to the cage so like how is the animator supposed to figure that out right (laughs) they're 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 not So what they did is that, you know, they made a maquette of it, Mm -hmm. half-size model that they made, filmed, and then traced with these photostats. And this kind of workflow was made more important when you think about the fact that, like, the only important part of those scenes is Pinocchio's face and reactions. So, like, you can't. You can't just have a scene with nothing interesting in the background because you're focusing on Pinocchio's face. Mm-hmm. The rest of the environment still needs to come to life. So they were like, well, I can't <laughs> I can't possibly from my head animate that. Like there's no way. That's, so that's huge because that's gonna save like on on drawing time you know, a oh, massive amount. And like you said, it, it enables them to bring other parts of it to life. A- the only other option is to like draw it frame by frame or make it part of the background painting. And I could see why like neither of those would, would either create the look that they wanted mm-hmm. or be like, you know, something feasible to do on this project, yes. which just take way too long. Of course. And I'm sure Walt was pushing too for everything that could be done to be done. So mm-hmm. it's like, all right, well, if we're saying that this wagon is rocking and rolling down the street i want it to be rocking and rolling i don't yeah. want it to be a still background that all moves at the same time because mm-hmm. it's not realistic and as much as For they sure. were trying to work with that gray area between being hyper realistic and being fantastical you still want to hit that sweet spot right yeah so sure. they put all this they put all this work into the film they put all this money in it takes them years to develop the story they finally get there jiminy's on board ward's on bar on board you know uh Walt himself is just like, hey, let's go. Let's release mm-hmm. it. And then 
World War Two. World War Two. <laughs> like, Oops. Yeah. To say to say that the world wasn't in the mood would be almost offensive. It's too big of an understatement. It's like, like trying to release a movie oh and then COVID gosh. happens. It's oh you my know, life. I know. Like, Do you know how long I had to look at the same poster from the expressway driving past the Galaxy Cinemas at Constable Mall? The same poster for that like. Um, Jeremy Camp movie. If you remember who Jeremy Camp is, they made no. some like Hallmark Jennifer Garner style faith based movie that the poster was up for almost a full year. And I was like, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. Very upsetting. Like, yeah. just change it, please. And just- that would have been the equivalent. Uh, not that Pinocchio is a Jennifer Garner faith based movie uh, <laughs> in the 40- yeah. forties. Uh, catch and release hashtag. But bless. Pinocchio was finally released in February of 1940, and this was only five months after World War II broke out in Europe. And as a result, their distributor, which is RKO Radio, they were prevented from distributing the film right away. And this caused Disney to take a million dollars of loss, which was about 40% of the cost to make it. So they really just kind of threw almost 50% of the cost in the garbage and were like, cool, love that for me. And then when they actually were able to distribute the film, of course, like I said, people are a little bummed out that it's World War II. And the story is, is already not, a bit darker. It's not what you want to see. Like, <sighs> no. If Cinderella that. had come out, it would have been yes. a different story. Yes. It, yep. Even if Snow White had come out, very different story. It's 100% escapism. Like this film's themes are like heroism and mm-hmm. temptation. They're really heavy. Yeah. It's not... It's not easily accessible. Like I said, if I was scared of Stromboli, so were many other children. Like, it just is not. It's just not quite what people were looking for. So when critics finally saw it, they liked it. But it was not a box office success. And then even when it was re-released in 1992, like the VHS that I uh, is Mm -hmm. so beloved to me and that I've described, it did much better commercially. But it's still like. It didn't do so hot. I think it was like it was it was the first one that they released also like the first VHS. It's possible. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. Can I ask like, do you think that this movie is for kids? Like that was something that was like on my mind while watching it. Like it's kind of confusing as to whether or not it's for kids or adults. And I couldn't really like place it and i think to me that's like the main problem with it is i don't know that the audience was necessarily established yeah i think that's a great point i mean i enjoyed it as a child but i wasn't paying attention to the story i liked the colors i thought pinocchio was cute i thought that jiminy was funny i wasn't paying attention to the content i was only looking at it as a visual experience which is why stromboli was scary and that's Mm -hmm. when the experience ended for me because i was frightened right like well like it's true when i consider watching this movie now as an adult, I definitely think that the themes are more adult than for kids. I don't Mm -hmm. think that a child can grasp the concept of temptation and what's really being asked of Pinocchio and like what he's going through. And the reality is too, that the scale of the issues he's dealing with is way bigger than what the average child is going to deal with. Like, yeah, I felt like if those were like smaller, like they went so big on those, if they had just made them, you know, like smaller things, this could have been like a really cute story, but they just went yeah. 
the stakes were just too high. Like they were really <laughs> too high. weird. I wonder. Yeah, I want. I think though, based on everything we've learned about mm-hmm. this film, it was really about the final visual product. Like, and yeah. that's actually one of the things that. I would say is part of the biggest impact of this film. Like it defined animation as an art form. That was Walt's goal, I think more than anything. So he was like, you know, buck the story as uh, my aunt Ellie would say, she says, buck the odds, but like, who knows what that means? But I think the visual presentation of the story is what mattered. The story itself, like, you know, they struggled for three years to get it to a point only like that was salvageable i think only because walt knew visually this is going to kill like this is going to be i want to see this come to life because i want to prove that we can do it i don't think he thought it was the best story that's why it took so long for them to get it to this point i don't know because like like, that's something that's always been important to him though i know but i i don't know even when you were talking i was like walt slow your roll you greedy gus like he just really i think the success of snow white if i was walt disney Mm-hmm. in the late 30s and I had had the success of Snow White it would be very hard for me not to want to bite off an incredibly ambitious project as my second right. one because you got that wind beneath your sails you feel mm-hmm. buoyed you're like I did it once I can do it again and I'm sure he saw this story that was not for kids or like not for film yeah as a challenge but I think as he opened that Pandora's box of a challenge, he discovered that visually that's the real challenge. And that's, right. I think, what he focused on. Because everything we talked about of what he loved about like making this film was all the visual stuff yeah. and the technology. It was not the story. Snow White, he cared about the dwarfs and he cared about you know, how people would see her and this and that. I think he was less involved, based on what we've learned. I, yeah. I was not there. But based on what we learned and I've talked about today, I think he was less involved still involved but less involved and as a result less invested in that piece of the overall film i mean that's fair that would have been happening like while snow white was still going on so yeah you know i that that does make sense to me i also Mm. i don't know i i also animation was still super new in this like feature form so they're still kind of figuring out what makes a good feature animated film and like what doesn't yes. what stories work yes. like what can we tell how dark can we go you know mm-hmm. with this like new medium it is an interesting story like the layers mm-hmm. of symbolism uh if y'all want a resource you let me know i found a great one that just kept me kept me reading till the bitter end um, yeah. but there are so many layers that you could peel back mm-hmm. in this uh story that it would kind of play into what you're saying where it's kind of like we're still figuring out what this means but i think evidence of disney's visual language like that idea of drawing people into the atmosphere of a story before words have even been spoken and like using mm-hmm. technology to accomplish like some of the beautiful shots we get in pinocchio yeah. i often think um of jiminy's voice going pretty as a picture like when i read stuff like this at the very beginning that like sleepy village yeah. it is so imaginative it's so stunning it's still and it's visual storytelling unlike mm-hmm. anything you've ever seen before so yeah i mean and those and those are shots that are common in a lot of like live action films right like a panorama yeah. a beautiful you know like that sleepy village shot is the equivalent of in the sound of music when maria's on the mountaintop and comes out yeah. at the beginning right but like absolutely in an, at the time in animation you didn't that was unheard of you don't yeah. spend that much money and spend that much time on like a, a shot yeah <laughs> 
You don't do it. You just do not do it. So, I mean, whether it's for kids or for adults, I think it was largely and most importantly for Walt. And I think he got what he wanted from it. All right. So I didn't address uh, how racist, sexist, and politically incorrect this film is, even though that's literally my one job as a co-host on this podcast. So I'm going to amend that now. That is my apology for this episode that I just didn't do my job. And we literally finished recording it. And I thought to myself, you skipped a whole big mess of problems. Like just, just because you love Pinocchio doesn't mean you can't talk about how horrifying it is. So I want to start off by saying that shockingly, Pinocchio is not part of Disney Plus's cultural warnings. We're warned that there's tobacco usage. um, Mm -hmm. And apparently, based on what I've read, a lot of the reason that that is even a warning these days, just for interest sake, is simply because the increase of teenage vaping and stuff like that has been really big in the past few years. So Disney doesn't want to contribute to that problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which I mean, like, okay, like work, I guess. (laughs) But um, (laughs) There's nothing at all in their cultural, you know, warning, though, for this film about how horrendous other things in this movie are. So for starters, it's got a few pretty horrible racial caricatures and stereotypes um, of different people groups. So, for Mm. example, Stromboli is a really aggressive caricature of Italian people. To me, it always stood out even when I was a kid. Right. That I was like, okay. This this person is definitely not from the same culture as Pinocchio and Geppetto. Yeah. And he looks significantly different in ways that make it clear that he's a bad guy. And this is kind of a similar problem to what we see in films like Aladdin as well. So that's something that I should have acknowledged that I did not. And I'm acknowledging it now. I would also like to acknowledge the horrific representation of indigenous peoples uh, and Pleasure Island. Tobacco Row? Yeah. Somehow in my passion for Pinocchio just decided not to mention this when we first recorded it. The next bigger category of problems that uh, the film should have apologized for, and now in extension, I'm apologizing for not mentioning, is how sexist it is Mm, as well. Like, Jiminy Cricket's response to literally every female figure in this film is inappropriate. Yes. The female marionettes are overly sexualized in Stromboli's marionette show, and Jiminy's shown, like, you know, putting his glasses on so he can see better. And I'm like, Jiminy, why are you going to be like that? Like, and even with the blue fairy, he's a creep. Like, Jiminy is just low-key lecherous, and I don't like that. But then finally, the coachman. We talked about the coachman and how horrific he is. Yeah, he bad. He's really bad. There's a lot of schools of thought on the coachman that indicate that, like, he's a child trafficker. Mmm, Wow. Yeah, I didn't really address how horrifying the whole Pleasure Island situation is since kids are literally being abducted and then sold to mines where they're worked until they die. Um, And I think this is what leads people to describe the coachman as a slaver, a child trafficker, a murderer, and then also to a lot of people, a pedophile who gets away with it. This, this is one of those stories where there are a lot of dark cultural interpretations which are all along these lines and there are like endless discussions of what the coachman represents. And again, as a media student, the conversations around these layers of meaning are fascinating. Disturbing, mm-hmm. but fascinating. But one of the things that I was just thinking about as I, you know, was diving deeper and deeper and deeper into some of these interpretations is that as a cautionary and moralistic tale, 
this is bound to happen because the whole mm. point of Pinocchio as a story, even the original was like, you know, to warn kids to not be bad basically. Right. So who knows where, what all of the layers of intention that the original author had were right. The same way that when you talk about Shakespeare in school, I have often thought like, did Shakespeare actually think X, Y, and Z, or was this just a byproduct of us thinking too much about something? Yeah. So I'm not excusing. I am not excusing how horrifying these realities are, but Pinocchio is one of those stories where it's clear it can be as scary or as magical as you want it to be, where you want your layer of interpretation to stop. For me, it was always a magical story. For Lish, for you, terrifying. it was terrifying. So scary. Yeah. So it's layered and accessible from many different points of view. And I just want to end this very long apology with a quote from one of my favorite authors, Neil Gaiman, who made the point that authors are creatures of their time, and even they cannot see everything their book is about. So... Regardless of where you feel this, the layers of mm -hmm. cultural context or intention end, all we can do is interpret it. And where you choose to end your interpretation is where you are welcome to end your layer of interpretation. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank you for listening to my apology. Please, Lish, your apology. And the award for longest apology ever goes to Curbs. Congratulations. That's that a long one. Um, mine's much shorter. I just want to apologize for um, hating this movie because I tried to like it, but I I truly, truly hate it. So I'm sorry, Curbs. Oh, I did my, my goodness. best. My best. I just gave you a lot of reasons that you should hate it. Yes. So I mean, yes. I <laughs> egged me on there. You know. egged me on there. All right. And as always, we want to mention some of the amazing sources that we used to put this podcast together for you guys. I want to start off with The Illusion of Life by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. Classic book. Another classic book that I would like to mention is The Art of Walt Disney by Christopher Finch was also super useful in this one. And a classic for me is Ink and Paint, The Woman of Walt Disney's Animation by Mindy Johnson. I then started to go deeper into the corners of the internet uh, to find out some more about this film. So a really, really useful article was by a woman named Genevieve Kosky, written for The Dissolve, and it was called How Pinocchio Set the Standard for Feature Animation. And finally, for me, the Walt Disney Film Archives by, and I'm going to butcher this, I apologize, Daniel Kothenschlut. Hence, for known um, by me as Danny K. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and I went as close to the dark web as you can get and still be able to come back by reading an article called The Darker Corners of Pinocchio by Adnan Bay for The Artifice. And as always, if you are looking for more shenanigans like these, please make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. Better yet, why not rate us? Those stars go a long way. We're also super excited to be part of the Magic of the Mouse radio family. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m. EST to catch your favorite Scenario D episodes. And as always, don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You're going to love the magic we're making there.